0: I'm Dr. Richard Urso. I've been uh, going through this process uh, with COVID for the last year and a half. Uh, my background is uh, I'm practicing physician. i uh, one of the biggest practices in the United States um, of its kind, and I've been uh, a researcher, though. I've, I've been in an FDA-approved drug. Uh, I spent 11 years in the lab, two years in biochem, nine in tissue culture, and so I have a, a really good uh, science background and in primarily in uh, scarring, wound healing and inflammation, but also some tumor virus work. So I've, I've been in this uh, the whole time, just trying to help interpret data, trying to give a good message uh, that there's way through this, uh, that uh, we don't have to just lock down. And I thought that was never a good message. And Primarily, we've been focused, on, uh, of course, contagion control, but also Early treatment has been uh, one of the things I thought was missing from from the from the uh, uh, from what most people were coming out of Washington saying. In fact, the NIH, as you know, have said that there is no early treatment, not any early treatment, not for thrombosis, not for inflammation, not for respiratory distress, and that always seemed really silly to me. And right now, we're getting a tremendous number of patients, the Delta variant, uh, which uh, quote unquote Delta variant, because they're just testing for COVID and we all assume it's Delta variant. Um, we're getting a tremendous number of cases I'm seeing, I've seen 137 cases so far in August. So I'm up over 700 patients seen and treated. Of course, there's a lot of patients that have had prophylaxis. I don't even know, I don't count those on the list, but we're getting a lot of patients that are sick and especially the insulin resistant ones, the ones that are 30 pounds overweight, they're not doing that well. Uh, we're really you know, struggling. Uh, but We've got a great formula and we've been able to save everyone. We've had we've had some difficulty last, at the end of June is where we really hit it and the ivermectin wasn't working and some of our old protocols needed to be changed. But we made the adjustments now and we're doing great with the treatments.
1: So when you said the ivermectin wasn't working, that's kind of interesting because a lot of people are saying that ivermectin is a, you know, part of the frontline protocol. So what's going on with that? Well, you know, the
0: uh, for whatever... For, we didn't, I mean, we went to an AFLDS uh, uh, conference and we, we, we sat there and we we're like, what is going on? The ivermectin is not working. At First, we were just using it one or two days. Now, most of us started, had used it. Uh, we we talk every, all all the time. We we're literally on threads all the time together. Um, and we started using it up to six days. And then we started making other adjustments. Like the protocol I've been using right now um, is a variation based on uh, things that I've learned uh, while talking to people all around the world. So I'm using um, ivermectin, um, and, or hydroxychloroquine. Um, and I don't have to use either one of those two though, because I've, I've found this protocol where I do an H1 blocker, ciproheptadine, pepsit, an H2 blocker, singular, a leukotriene analog, and then I do steroids and antibiotic, heavy dose vitamin D that's made a huge, uh, impact because it lowers all the inflammatory markers and then melatonin, um, and I've been going really low carb. I've doing that because a lot of these patients were putting them on steroids, and their their sugars are going through the roof. So I've been doing a low carb um, approach only because the sugars are going through the roof with the steroids, uh, not because of any other reason.
1: Okay, so th- could you t- take each each part of the protocol, each drug in the protocol, and explain what it addresses?
0: Yeah, what we're trying to do with with this is decrease inflammation. So. You know, the ivermectin, you know, just uh, without going too long into detail, um, is affecting nuclear crosstalk. So the nucleus uh, uh, gets information from the virus to say, hey, we're here in peace. And the virus basically uh, uh, tricks the nucleus and in not into sending interferon out to, to destroy it. And so and it also tells the other cells around it like, no, this is a this is a friendly guy here. And that's the main effect of, of, of ivermectin, but it has other effects. I mean, it blocks ACE2 receptor. It actually has some uh, uh extracellular trap effects, and it actually affects inflammation. So there's, there's downstream effects. It's not just attacking the virus. Same with the hydroxychloroquine. It has a huge impact on, on many different things, but its main thing is it does affect, um, it blocks the virus a little bit, not too much, but the virus gets in. But at the end of the day, it prevents viral assembly. So I, I tell people, it, it thwarts the viral production it uh and it slows the what's called the copy machine down a little bit but the main thing is it, it doesn't let the car parts turn into cars it doesn't let the virus turn into viral particles the, the viral assemblies is it and so you get a little inflammation like you had a like a vaccine where you get viral particles in a vaccine um but you're not getting this full-blown and that's why they i always said from the beginning they're using the PCR because they're making car parts and they're going to be PCR positive, but they're not making cars. Um, and that's been all the way back. I said that back last March. Um, and then we've got the H1 blocker, ciproheptadine. It's it's in, interesting because we're trying to block mast cell degranulation. And what this does, uh, it does more than that, though. It blocks a little bit of serotonin. It's anti-muscarinic, has multiple effects, and uh, really seems to help the headaches a lot.
1: What is um, anti-muscarinic?
0: Uh, that's, you know, basically, uh, acetylcholine, one of the things that you have in your body, um, uh, so you, you have a system where you're basically secreting these, these chemicals, and acetylcholine is one of the main chemicals, and, and it sort of blocks the secretion. You know, if, uh, if somebody gets too much ac- uh, acetylcholine in their body, they faint for instance, you know, they get nauseous and faint, like uh, they pass out in a, um, you know, if you're in church and you and you get the spirit overcoming you, you can pass out. Or if you're in a, in a hot theater or something like that, you pass out. That's, you get a burst of acetylcholine. It blocks that, 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 uh, and it's basically in the vagus nerve and your stomach is a huge secretor of that. Um, and we think that uh, it's got these other effects, though. Like I said, the, uh, that affect the. It seems like the headaches are a lot more improved with that over over anything. A real surprise, actually. I didn't really expect to see that. And then the H two blockers, Pepcid, Fomotidine, uh, and that's um, again, we're looking for as much mast cell uh, 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 preventing mast cell degranulation. Look at the analog. The traditional drug uh, has been uh, singular, and when we're, we're using that, uh, and it's being it's being very helpful. Also, I'm getting a lot of good feedback from other docs that are saying that that is making a big difference. I'm seeing I'm seeing that being said about the ciprohepty and the singular. Um, and then as we go further, of course, corticosteroids have been used from the beginning. My very first patient, I used steroids on back in March 10th or 12th of 2020 because it's an inflammatory disease. So as it, and it, it was borne out later in, in randomized control trials in the hospital that it worked. And they we're trying to say in general that. It didn't work in the outpatient setting, which almost is silliness that oh, it works in the hospital. It's like a magic thing where you step in the hospital and, and it works, but <laughs> you go in the outpatient; and these things don't work. So that's what they were they were attempting to do. Um, and then the melatonin decreases something called NLRP3 inflammasomes, which is a, I tell people it's like a it's not the tree trunk, but it's a big branch um, of inflammation, and it's um, it's it's thought that it comes from the inflammation from that is thought to come from the nucleocapsid portion of one of the proteins that is found in the SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, genome. So you have the spike, nucleocapsid membrane, envelope, and hemoglobinase So all these things uh, make up the virus. Um, I might have left something out. Aspirin. Uh, we use Lovenox if uh, uh, the patient has a rising D-dimer, but I've been just using aspirin, baby aspirin to start out. And That's I think to keep
1: that, the clotting down, right? That's to keep the, the clotting. The clotting is huge.
0: So, I mean, <laughs> one of the biggest things that happen uh, in this is the clotting. Now, also, these uh, these clotting things, hydroxychloroquine has a huge impact on clotting downstream. And so I actually like it as a drug. I, I don't use it very often anymore, just so I get so much pushback. And I always say, you can take any two drugs away, including hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, it'll still be successful. It's, it's you know, we've got things. And the D, I think, Massive study came out showing that as you give the high dose D at the beginning of this, the downstream effects on inflammation are. You're are talking massive. about
1: vitamin D. Is it vitamin D3 or just? Correct. I would wow. really
0: push it. Anybody who's sitting here thinking about well, they can't get access to anything, get access to vitamin D. And for every 30 to 35 pounds, take 1,000 IU's. So if you're 200 pounds, you want to take about you know roughly six six thousand
1: wow wow and That's and good- you and all your par- patients are surviving
0: I, I had one patient back in march who didn't survive um he was it was non-compliant i'm not not picking on him, but he was non-compliant like he would, he felt better after one day and he went to work missed a couple of days taking his meds um i was actually treating um his wife also she you know followed all the directions he was trying to go to work and he had already had a, he was a chemo patient. Uh, he had recently had uh, a cancer therapy and was actually recovering and doing quite well, but he was overweight, diabetic, um, a lot of risk factors, a lot of comorbidities for him. So he was a high risk patient, um, and, and really, but a hardworking person, very fine person. Um, but just kind of stubborn. And, um, before he knew it, he was, um, about day eight or nine, he had massive respiratory failure, uh, and, uh, ended up going to the hospital and, um, I, uh, you know, just didn't, you know, didn't do well over the course of a month passed away.
1: And that's the only one you've lost?
0: Yeah. I mean, out of how many? Uh, well, a, a treat. I mean, I have a lot of people that I haven't treated. It's, about, it's over. It's about 720 something. I, I think it's around 723 right now. And 723 people, which is unusual, you know, because wow. uh, my practice is not a uh, family practice, of course. What but is a lot your of us practice? are doing this.
1: Talk about so, your, what is your practice, so people know.
0: So, so I'm on a thread, and the people on the thread. I'm an ophthalmologist by trade. Okay, that's um, that's what I did. But I, I did spend six years doing ER. I, for many years in my during my residency and stuff, I spent a lot of time in the ER, and I did trauma call, and I did. I'm one of the only ophthalmologists I know does anterior skull base surgery. So, I had a pretty intense practice historically. Um, worked at one of the biggest uh, cancer hospitals in the world, and and so. When I talk about this, it kind of gets people like how he's fitting glasses, but that's actually not true. And you know, like I said, the great background in inflammation. So I feel like I was primed to actually discuss this whole matter um, when it came up last year. And I was, um, I felt really comfortable just going ahead and doing what I do.
1: You're an oncological ophthalmologist, too, aren't you? Yes. So, okay. So let's.
0: So I was going to tell. I was going to just. I didn't want to. I didn't want to say this, but I just. I think it's the audience needs to hear this. It's really interesting. So our team, our thread has maybe four family practitioners. Okay, but also we have two psychiatrists, a uh, pathologist, um, we have a neurologist, um, anesthesiologist, and there's a couple other in there that are. Uh, I'm blanking on on other things, but it's sort of similar that are not your traditional, um, what you'd consider to be family practice frontline, uh, taking care of people who are sick with the virus. But there is so, a lack of people that are willing to do it. So all these people have stepped up. Now we're seeing, I'm getting a lot of calls from ER people. I'm getting calls from people in the hospital also, because I've been given this formula to people that work in the ICUs. I go, look, follow your protocol. Don't use the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, but use these other things. And if you use them, you're gonna get better results and we're getting better results. Because they're, they're not allowed to use these in the hospital. They, they literally, it, they will they will lose their job if they use any of these drugs in the hospital. The docs tell me, like I can't do it. I, I they'll literally, throw, you know, I'll be I'll have my job gone in a day. I have to follow the protocol. And they're using remdesivir, which all the time, which doesn't, the, the virus doesn't replicate for very long. So I tell people, human beings don't live for 300 years, right? So, but viruses have, a, a, upper respiratory virus have a life cycle of about five to seven days, and then they're gone. That's, that's just how it works. There's not, we don't have people living 300 years. We don't have viruses, upper respiratory viral illnesses that string out over, um, you know, over five weeks. It doesn't happen. All right. You get a bacterial infection that can happen. So my point being that the virus only replicating five to seven days and three weeks later, you still have people giving remdesivir. It only works in the viral replication cycle. It's almost insanity. It's almost like saying what kind of doctor, I mean, what are they looking at? I don't understand why they would give this drug but I found out that as part of the program and, and not to pick on these guys they're doing their best. They probably they've hidden this information somehow that I'm giving you right now. They don't seem to know this. Um, they don't talk about this at all, but um, but, but they're giving it thinking they're helping and they're, and they're not helping at all. And now a ma- major study came out showing that um, uh, Remdesivir does increase the length of stay in the doesn't, doesn't help the life at all and it increase the length of stay in the hospital. So, Uh, you know, it's, you know, helping the billing, I guess, but that's about it.
1: What study is that?
0: I'll send it to you later. Uh, It just came out maybe two weeks ago, within a week or so. Remdesivir increases the length of stay and does not increase. uh, It's on my Twitter feed. You want to look at it. I just put it up there. I think a day or two ago.
1: Well, send me the link because I'll put it uh, with it. But uh, hold up, hold up, hold up. This is so disturbing to me. I can't even take it. I mean, you're saying that. These doctors are being forced to give this remdesivir that doesn't work after a certain time. By the way, it's also quite expensive. I understand, like six thousand bucks per, because uh, you have to take it intravenously. I guess it's a and and they don't even know. They don't even know that this drug isn't working, or I mean,
0: they don't. And, and, the, and the studies are bearing it out. They, the World Health Organization uh, has come out and said maybe six months ago that uh, this is not something we should, you know, we're don't we're not we not promoting it at all. And then this recent study came out uh, saying that basically it increased the length of stay uh, in the hospital. So this is a this major news. This is criminal. It, I, well, the reason it's criminal, I'll tell you why, because it's not like you're giving salt water. Um, you know, it, I've had um, one of my patients... Um, was in the hospital and the, the person sitting next to him, uh, got remdesivir and went in a liver failure. And then they came in the next day and said, we're going to, we're going to start you on remdesivir. He literally got out of his bed. His stats were terrible. And he, he, he came out, he just walked out of the hospital with his IV and everything. He like still in his arm. He just said, I, 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 I'm scared in there, but people are actually, and, and, and not that, I don't want to kind of promote fear. Okay. So I think people are just fearful of the unknown of the lack of, of dialogue, the lack of, um, uh, uh, talking to your doctor when you're in there and actually saying, Hey, I don't want, you mind if we use ivermectin, I want to give it a try, at least have a discussion. There's no discussion, um, but, about it,
1: but, but what you're saying, let me explain why what you're saying is not right. Is because that you have to it's assuming that the patient is supposed to know what's best for them and come into the doctor with the solution. The solution needs to come from the doctor. The doctor is supposed to be the expert. So the problem that's going on here is there's all this very heavy propaganda against the drugs that work, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and this cocktail that you just previously described and and instead doctors are being told use this and they're watching their parents patients die and they're being and and you're saying doctors who are knowledgeable or have they they are being told they can't use this i mean how can this not be a criminal situation Are, are you telling me you don't think that the fauci's of the world um know uh, the, i know they
0: this- i know they know this uh, this is uh, so i would say the same thing about this and same thing i would say about lipid nanoparticles they know they distribute everywhere it wouldn't be hard to know If you work with lipid nanoparticles you know they distribute everywhere so same thing here this is this is basic science stuff that i know they have to know that that this what i just told you is that the life cycle of the upper respiratory virus five to seven days this is known i mean this is this is immunology 101 and you know, the problem
1: is-, is is you have to get it at that time, because yeah, after which, that, you're dealing with an overabundance of of uh,
0: car parts, basically viral particles. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, so let's let's move on to the uh, vilification of the unvaxxed. They're saying, you know, because of these unvaccinated people, you know, people are 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 getting this dealt, you know, I, the impression is, oh yes, we've got Delta now because of the unvax because they're out there spreading everything. So, could you please talk about this? Uh, is yeah, this? Go ahead.
0: No, I think it's a great, great topic. So, when we talk about um, about treatment, right? We know that if we this is a very simple thing that and this is not a bad or good thing. It's just a thing, okay? That we're we're seeing the vaccinations are creating the variants. That that is well known in medicine. When you give an antibiotic and you treat with an antibiotic in a hospital over and over the same antibiotic for, for a certain uh, pathogen, you're gonna get mutants that arise against the antibiotic. So the people who are taking the antibiotic are actually creating the mutations. When the people are, there are many people in the, in the same thing being uh, vaccinated and those people still shed and, and make virus. And what's happening is those people are the ones that are just like when you have a narrow antibiotic, it's creating the, the mutants, mutations occurring in the vaccinated people and i don't vilify the, the people for that it's just a, it's just a fact we just we make an adjustment based on that this is medicine 101 again you know when you give a treatment the the you know life finds a way and and so when you give a treatment when you don't give a treatment it's harder because remember when you give a narrowly focused treatment to just the spike which is just 12% of the genome it's easier for the viruses to find a way around it um, when you have i said spike membrane envelope nucleocapsid hemagglutinin esterase, When you have all those other things that you have to deal with the the natural immunity, you get both B and T cell immunity to that. You're going to have a much more broad and durable immunity. So you're not going to see this vaccination occurring in the, in the, uh, in the people who are unvaccinated because they get a much more broad, durable, wide ranging uh, immunity. That's, that's, there's nothing special about this. We shouldn't be mad about it. We shouldn't, this is just what happens when we do medicine.
1: So what, Are you saying it's better to be unvaccinated and if you get COVID to be treated with this early treatment protocol, and then you have your natural immunity that is durable and that gets around these variants much more easily than if you're vaxxed? Is that what you're saying? Well,
0: I mean, I I don't want to completely trash vaccination. You know, I've I've never spoken out against vaccination in my entire life. And what I can say is this, that this particular uh, vaccine has not really worked that well. We've, we're in the middle of an epidemic, we're getting lots of breakouts. And it's normal to see that, like for instance, let's just go to the data. The data says that, that this, this population in Israel, 90% of the people are vaccinated. 90% of the people that are getting the virus are vaccinated people. And what we're seeing is where I tell people, it's like wearing a blue shirt, doesn't protect against the virus, and neither does the Pfizer vaccine in Israel. So data is showing us that the vaccinated are not being protected by the vaccination program. Maybe there might be some signal that they're not dying as much, but there's there's also signals in other countries, like in Scotland and England, where that's actually not true. There's actually the people who are vaccinated are dying a little higher rate than the percentage of people that have, that have vaccination.
1: So let me ask you this. Um, if if the vaccinated are creating the Delta variant and and the official response you know is oh we have to get boosters we have to get more um, we have to get more vaccines we have to people have to get more be vaccinated more they have to get the boosters uh, uh, what what does that mean I mean does that mean that other even worse variants could emerge or is that a good policy? Explain the, that to me.
0: Uh, well, that's what we're seeing. In these these narrowly focused uh, uh, vaccines, you're going to have escape. And, and it looks, we don't know where it's going to end up. We could be like a dog chasing his tail, kind of like what we do with influenza. So it's possible we in, may end up in that same sort of place where we constantly need boosters because we constantly are creating, um, uh, in some sense, creating you know the natural uh, Uh, life takes away and and, and, and in a sense their escape occurs because you have a narrowly focused um, treatment and and they find a way around it. So yeah, we might be doing this for a long time. Um, This is not going to happen in the people who who catch it naturally. They're not going to have, we have the SARS-CoV-1 patients from 18 years ago that are still uh, quite immune to SARS-CoV-2. So a natural immunity is going to be a broader, more durable, long lasting immunity. And I think it's preferable Right now, that's preferable what I'm seeing um, in the vaccination program, which is only you know, six months or so of, of, of some um, potential protection. More importantly, we're still waiting to look at the data to see if actually the antibodies that were created as they wane, what we saw in animal models early on for years with coronaviruses, as the antibodies wane, the remaining antibodies were more or less binding antibodies, and they protected the virus kind of like a Trojan horse. So it actually made them slightly more infectious. So that's called antibody-dependent enhancement. And think of it as the remaining antibodies bind to the virus, but don't neutralize it. And the the other cells in the body kind of look at it and say, oh, wow, that's interesting. Looks like the antibodies have this under control. We don't have to make an attack. Because in a sense, that Trojan horse effect, like, oh, there's nothing to be worried about here. It's just a Trojan horse. Um, It's just, you know, the virus is getting um, uh, neutralized by these antibodies, when in reality, all they're doing is binding and coding and protecting. That's called antibody-dependent enhancement, and it creates higher viral loads. We're hoping to get data. We don't have data to look at these patients, their viral loads, to see if they're actually higher viral loads than the people who are vaccinated. There are some indications that this is happening in some parts of the world, but we don't have actual data in a study, in a trial anywhere. And we're really interested in finding that out if this is happening.
1: Uh, is anybody working on that right now anywhere in the world?
0: You know, the, you know, trying to get this information, you know, they, the, all this stuff is trying to figure out these things, proprietary information that is basically um, the CDC basically does all the work on the very variants. So we don't know in our local communities that we actually have a variant that the, the technology is owned by the CDC. And if you want this technology to be used, you have to send your samples to the CDC. They're not, I, I'm sorry. not on the local level.
1: I'm sorry, isn't the CDC a government organization? How can it be proprietary to them? Isn't it our tax dollars that pay for the CDC's uh, existence?
0: Well, they own all, almost all the patents on, um, on SARS-CoV-2 are owned by, C, by the CDC and other agencies. If you haven't had a chance, you might want to look at the patent trail. Uh, David Martin, uh, David Martin uh, he's a PhD, He's got a a, a a wonderful video. He's a highly respected uh, uh, person in in medicine. He's not a he's not a doctor. He's a PhD, but he's got the the trail of patents and yeah. All he's a patent
1: around. expert. He he's a he's he's like a forensic expert in patents or something. Yeah, I, I yeah. understand that. But in this particular case, we're in this you know global emergency. It's a global pandemic. Uh, the CDC uh is uh, you know they're paid with taxpayer dollars how can that information that could save lives be withheld from american physicians and other people treating covid covid patients that again seems like a criminal situation to me
0: well i mean you know i think you and i talked a little bit about this these these agencies are captured by the entities they're supposed to be regulated so The 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 big pharma and vaccine uh, industry has really controls the FDA, the CDC, and the NIH, and and it's not intentional. If you talk to anyone, look, I was there. I talked to a lot of the people. They're very nice. They're very great people. And if you talk to them individually, um, and Barbara Barbara uh, Deborah Burks now works for my brother. You know, I mean, some of these people are they're fine people individually. There is, but the whole process, no one seems no one has to tell somebody who works there. They're all smart that, you know, just play along in a sense. And I don't mean play along. I mean, there's a certain underlying current of, hey, Big Farm is really in control and, and you're not that powerful. Even the people who are the heads of these things are being pushed and pressured from other areas. And I don't know, you know, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm just gonna say, look, I talk to these people. They're very nice people and they understand science really well. So anything that's happening that's, and science is happening despite their best efforts.
1: Well, I I guess what's hard for me to accept is the idea that there are all these people in these institutions who see that their work has been uh, basically uh, usurped and and um, and corrupted, you know, and their agency corrupted while people are dying. And yet. You know, we don't see a mass whistleblowing uh brigade from any of these institutions. And until that happens, people like you are gonna be under a lot of pressure and scrutiny because you're one of a few who are looking at the science honestly and, and doing your work as per what the science demands, and you're dealing with a lot of suppression. Meanwhile, they're just saying, well, we can't, you know, big pharma there, but stand up and say something now is the time. Don't you think?
0: Yeah. Well, let me just say, in fairness, a lot of people don't cross over in the science side and the medicine side. So that they, 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 they struggle with the information, uh, you know, just imagine climate science, you know, if you're a climate scientist, you know, there's all these um, uh, factors that are hard to, hard to weigh in. In medicine, there's something similar where, you know, the guys who are the PhDs, they really don't know that there's no early treatment. I mean, they believe there is not. You know, they're not out actually treating patients. So they don't know. No one in any of these organizations has treated a single COVID patient. So understand that they're coming at it from there. Not a single person. Fauci, none of those people have treated I'm one I'm sorry.
1: COVID if you're a researcher, if you're a researcher... And you don't know. Uh, your research brain should tell you. Hmm. Let me make a few phone calls to some of these rubber meets the road physicians who are successfully treating COVID patients. Let me see what they're saying. That's a very simple thing. You don't have to be an investigative reporter. And if you call yourself a researcher, you know that should be the first thing that comes into your mind, don't you think?
0: I do. I mean, it goes both ways, though. Even the docs, you know, that are, there's a bunch of docs that actually were say like there's no early treatment. And it's insane. I even, I always tell them all the time, I go, you mean you're not going to treat early potential thromboses with a rising dimer? You're not going to treat the potential respiratory demise? If a patient has asthma, I had a, a patient that went in to the doctor's office, the pediatrician's office, and they thought he had COVID. And they sent him away. He had RSV. And all he did, he ended, the kid ended up going to the hospital, got some steroids and they could have done that in the in the outpatient setting they, they we always do RSV patients for children they always get you know a little bit of steroids in the office and uh and they go home and they're fine instead the kid had to throttle at home and 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 decrease uh in his uh his wellness decreased over a period of 2 days and he ended up in the hospital and where they gave the steroids so i don't know why this is happening people are just paralyzed and i'm going to say it's a shame because my mentors were, would never have allowed this to happen. The mentors that I had, you know, were guys down here that were legends, you know, the um, Bakey and Cooley and Red Duke. These guys were, were were doctors first, and they were doctors all day long. They went in the hospital. They never, many of them, they never took a day off. I'm talking Saturday and Sunday for years. They were in the hospital working, and they were very devoted to being, you know, to being physicians. And And that's the model that I sort of grew up under, um, in fact, even my first year on, on call and an in, in internship was every other night call. So we never, never, ever walked away from a patient. When AIDS came up, we never walked away from an AIDS patient. You know, we didn't even know what was causing it at first. We didn't know if it was respiratory, potentially, if you touch them. We didn't know. But we all went in, we took care of them. We didn't even blink an eye. We didn't even think about it. This is what we signed up
1: for. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's why, to me, this is... There's, there's uh, plenty of, of shame to go around. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I really have to look at it that way because people are dying. So my, my next question is, if a new variant emerges. Which it will. Okay. Will your early treatment protocol still apply?
0: At, at, we'll, probably, we'll probably have to adjust. Uh, I, I, I could almost guarantee we'll have to adjust to some extent. We're hoping that maybe new drugs will come online. You know, there's maybe new therapies. Um, I hear about antivirals, you know, that might come on board. But I tell people it's not the virus killing people. It's the viral particles and the cascade of inflammatory um, events that occur that's actually killing people. So if we could limit the amount of virus that's produced, we might be helpful, maybe. But I, that's why I really believe in prophylaxis you know, the vitamin D really helps. And then maybe do one of the drugs that has been shown in multiple trials to help for prophylaxis. Those might be two things that are really smart and we maybe should be doing them. And we could get a lot further along in this pandemic. If I was a patient, I'd want some prophylactic therapy.
1: So, uh, and the prophylactic therapy is what now?
0: Um, I've been doing once or twice weekly on ivermectin. And then I've been doing, um, either half a tab or a tab of hydroxychloroquine uh, daily. I was doing two a week uh, and once a week Ivermectin. It seems like it's not working quite as effectively. So I've, I've kind of uh, increased my, my, uh, my I've upped the dosage a little bit, although they're incredibly safe at those dosages. Both of those are incredibly safe. So I'm a huge vitamin D uh, fan. Also get your vitamin D over 50, your receptors are saturated. Your immune system needs vitamin D to make proper interpretations. Without vitamin D around, you'll interpret a piece of pollen as being a pathogen. You may and you and you might not recognize a pathogen for what it is. And you, it's very difficult to get into a cytokine storm uh, if you have good vitamin D levels over fifty.
1: So let me ask you something: um, Are you dealing at all with any side effects from vaccines? Uh, people coming in with uh...
0: So I don't want to be scary, but yeah, that's normal. When you vaccinate the whole population, yes, we've had a, I had, last week I had none, but I had 15 Bell's palsies in six weeks before that. So I'm getting a lot of people with, Bell's palsies are really, it's it's pretty common with this vaccination uh, program. And we're seeing a lot of things like that. We're getting inflammatory eye disease. I'm going to try to collate all that. Like I said, we've got a huge practice. Uh, of our practice, we're the, bi- the biggest or the second biggest in the country. So we've got a huge database to look at and I, I need to kind of collate some of that and look at it. Um, but part of me is like, we know that <clears throat> we know these things are happening. It's causing, the spike itself is probably 90 to 95% of the COVID-19 disease. It's causing the inflammation, it's causing the thrombosis. Shouldn't, shouldn't come as a surprise that the thing that causes the inflammation and thrombosis if you give it in high numbers, in a in a in a in a injection, you're going to cause problems. <laughs> it shouldn't. This should not be news.
1: So, um, what explain to the audience what Bell's palsy is, and explain what what which vaccine are we talking about here, and why does it cause that?
0: Again, that <laughs> that'd be a little anecdotal to say, but the, there are numbers out there. Uh, the Pfizer's been used the most, and it has the most Bell's palsies. <clears throat> most uh, Moderna is the second most used, and it's the second most Bell's palsy. And the J&J has the least, but it's the least used. So it seems to be just falling, just having the spike protein somehow. My impression might be that the lipid nanoparticles are more likely to cross the blood-brain barrier, but it's a seventh-nerve palsy where one side of your face doesn't work. You can't close your eye. Your mouth drips down. Um, It's a seventh-nerve. So the facial nerve runs like this, and all this side of the face doesn't work well. Um, And that's basically what a Bell's palsy is. And that's probably crossed in the blood-brain barrier. And I think if I were going to guess, um, because I haven't looked at the data carefully to look at this, but it's more likely to happen with lip and nanoparticle, which are designed to get through uh, the blood-brain barrier. They were used potentially as uh, carriers of chemotherapeutic agents to, to get into the brain because it's hard to get drugs to go into the, into the brain, into the eye. And that was the original, some of the designs that they were thinking about for using them. Then they found, oh, it goes to other places, it goes to the adrenal glands, the ovaries, the testes, and other, and other important uh, endocrinologi- endocrinologic organs. So you don't want to bring chemotherapeutic agents to those areas. So they kind of abandoned it because they weren't able to control the direction uh, where, these, where these products would go.
1: Well, was that put in the vaccines?
0: That's what that's what's used in the vaccine, and that's what's come out in the biodistribution study, exactly what I just said, that it goes to, um, goes to the you know, ovaries, um, and it goes to the adrenal glands. Um, they didn't even check the brain. I already know it's going to the brain. And the concern there is what I tell people, look, you know, there are, there are young women of childbearing age, and I'm really concerned. Is it mean something bad is going to happen? No, but you know you're going to get inflammation in those ovaries, and that cannot be a, a good thing for, for future fertility. I cannot Im- imagine that having an inflammatory um, agent in the ovaries is being a, a, a good thing for future fertility.
1: So, if if a woman of childbearing age um, takes the Pfizer vaccine, say, um, and then wants to get pregnant or whatever, is there any way to check to see if there's inflammation in the ovaries bef- to see if you know that's going to be an issue? Well,
0: why you know, so it's a good question. <clears throat> you you there are ways to look for inflammation like while the process is occurring. So if you, let's say it's a year or two later, there's not, I would doubt that there would be continued inflammation. I think it would be relatively short-lived until the, but we are seeing some continued presence of the antigenic fingerprint of the, of the virus, even 10 months later, even in people who've been infected. And we're seeing it also in people who, who have had the vaccine that we're seeing some fingerprint even left months later in monocytes and other places. But so the point is, in all, all in all, we think that most of the inflammation occur in a relatively short period of time um and and that uh, whether there be continued inflammation autoimmune response that that is not known right now. Um, some people are very concerned about that, but there are ways to look at that early on nobody nobody's done that work it would be you know you can do PET scans and other things maybe to look but um that that probably wouldn't be that helpful um I'd have to think about that a little bit more and how we'd actually look for the inflammation there. Uh, MRIs pick this uh, inflammation up quite well. Um, I use it for tumors. Uh, we have inflammatory tumors in the eye socket, and the MRIs usually pick them up pretty well. So we do them with and without gadolinium. I would imagine there might be a useful in, in the ovaries also.
1: Um, what about clotting? I mean, if if uh, talk about clotting.
0: Well, cl- clotting is a real problem with the virus, and it's a real problem with the vaccine. We're seeing massive amounts of people with issues with thrombosis um, downstream in the in the events that you get the virus and you, and you and you go downhill because of a cytokine storm. The thrombosis is a real killer and it causes organ failure. We're also seeing that in the in the in the vaccination program. The spike causes thrombosis. And quite a few of the younger people, and I always tell them, I go, if you're taking that vaccine, uh, take aspirin for about six weeks after, just because And then I've been checking a few D-dimers, and the D-dimers are a sign of microthrombosis, um, and that's basically a, a little bit elevated in a lot of these patients. So I just started checking that in the last month. I thought about it. It's like, why am I not checking that? That's, that's the marker we use when patients are sick. And I'm seeing uh, a slight elevation in the D-dimers in a lot of the patients who have chronic um s- chronic symptoms after getting the vaccine so i think that's i don't have a data set to look at that's that's uh, that's that i can sit on here and say with uh, certainty that i i think that's a problem but we know that's a problem thrombosis is real for both the virus and the vaccine
1: okay so you talked is by the way is that bell's policy is that um is that permanent
0: It can be. Uh, About 10% of them can have permanent injury. I would say what I tell most people is you'll probably have a recovery um, and you'll probably have, uh, you know, maybe a loss of a few percentage, but some people that never comes back and it's somewhere between five and 10%. So it's going to be a big number of people that uh, they may get partial recoveries and sometimes they get sort of the, the nerves crossed. So in other words, they don't, they don't hook up right. So sometimes they, they, they misfire. So they hook up and they're, they're hooking up, but instead of hooking up here to here, they're hooking up here to here. So there's, you know, you go, we call that aberrant regeneration, and that's, that happens sometimes.
1: So, so you, they try to
0: smile. So they try to smile instead of like when they blink their eye, and they end up doing that while they're trying to blink their eye, because, they, they, it it you know, every time they blink, they're,
1: there's they're a misconnection. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, is is there anything else? Is there chronic fatigue? Is there uh, are there any autoimmune problems that you've seen?
0: Well, we're seeing we're yes. I mean, there's a lot, and I, I, somebody needs to catalog these. All right, let me let me say what the problem is here. You would think that the, that people who are going to undergo this would have a, a very detailed follow up program. They do not. There's no follow up, so they've abandoned. To me, the biggest problem is. I could sit here and say yes, 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 all right. What should happen is to catalog these things. We should be cataloging just like with the with the, vac- the virus. 28 days of after, um, after you get the vaccine, if you die, it should be considered a vaccine death. Just like if 28 days after having the virus, you you die. Even if you get in a car wreck, it's considered a, a virus, a uh, COVID death. So that's the, that's the criteria we've been using for the last year and a half. It should apply to the vaccine also. I think you'd see those numbers be tremendously high. If we use those criteria, I think that's why they're not using those numbers, because it, it would be off the charts what we're seeing. You know, we have 12,000 people that have been reported. There's another 45,000 that apparently um, a CDC whistleblower has come out to say if 45,000 other people have been uh, throttled. The information has been throttled from the from the virus de- uh, database. And there's actual I don't know if you know this, but another 45,000 people that apparently uh, they're claiming have died from the um, from the vaccine. So this is, this is a huge uh, thing in the court, and this will be in court, uh, and the court case was filed probably about three weeks ago. But what we're seeing now is this aren't being, this aren't being systematically done. Let's take pathology, right? Well, how many autopsies do we have in the literature in the United States on the people who have died after the vaccine? One, one autopsy. And it, will, and it was very telling. We saw inflammation all over the place with the autopsy. They're not going out of their way to do these things and to catalog the information in a way that's systematic and scientific. It's not being done. So this is a real problem. I, I consider it. It's this not a, a problem, science.
1: it's a cover-up.
0: Yeah. Well, you get right to it a lot better than I do. <laughs> I take a long way to say the same thing. <laughs> so
1: well, um, I keep hearing it over and over. And I keep. Uh, by the way, whose court case is that? Um, uh,
0: it's against the Health and Human Health and Human Services, I think, not the CDC. Uh, and it was followed by Thomas Rents R E N Z. Okay.
1: Yes, I know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean this. Uh, this is just. Uh, it's, this is just breathtaking. It's breathtaking because now I'm wondering. Okay, so we're six. How many months out are we now? Um, from the uh, the first real push to vaccinate because now they want to come back with uh, boosters. And I, I had Meryl Nass on here, Dr. Meryl Nass, and she said that uh, the government, the U.S. government has arranged already for eight to nine shots for every American. So I, what are these boosters going to do, number one? And apparently these boosters are the same as the original vaccine.
0: I think we're gonna have messenger RNA uh, technology uh, for many things. You just seen the RSV, they have appro- they're have they up for approval for RSV. Uh, c- critically, you're gonna see in RSV the same thing. That's their-, their What's kids. an RSV? So respiratory syncytial virus is a, a, a thing that affects kids sig- significantly. So now you're gonna see them trying to get the, the, the messenger RNA vaccine into these kids. I really don't know the end game. I, I, personally, I, I really do think that uh, you have to assume that the pathogen matters, but the host matters too. And I think there should be some focus on the individual itself to do their best to improve their own health because your immune tolerance and your own immune system is, is a wonderful thing. We've been studying viruses. My, my immune system has been studying viruses through my ancestors for eons. Uh, so my, my immune system's pretty good. They've been doing their homework and I think they're, you know, I give them the right things to help them uh, to aff- function efficiently. And so viruses have been studying us but we've been studying viruses for a very long time. It's almost, I think, considered to be intellectually arrogant to think that we can outdo the, uh, to outdo our, our natural immune system on some of these things. I really think it's a shame that people actually believe that. It's like saying you could chemically make food better than what grows on the earth. It's, these, are just fa- these are just fallacies that basically, they, I would call it uh, scientism. They've, they've, they have a whole a whole host of, of, of things that they're passing on us that we think we need. And I call it scientism. It's not real science. We don't need all these boosters. It's, it's a fallacy. We need to do the simple things like prophylaxis. Um, that's going to end the pandemic. If we all did prophylaxis, we'd be out of this pandemic in a very quick order. Uh, I don't think it's smart policy which is why I've just founded this, American, um, this uh, pandemic uh, health alliance with a lot of great, great influence from a lot of uh, great scientists and physicians. Um, and I consider myself to be just a small part of it, but I, you know, putting it together and um, getting the platform together, and we have a huge platform uh, that will allow us to amplify our message, and I'm looking forward to being able to do that. Um, not so much be, to, for me because I think there are others who are going to better uh, better messages than I do, and I'm looking forward to having that uh, be out there so people what, can get this information.
1: What? Oh, okay. On on prophylaxis and on early treatment and on. Okay, so it, it's interesting because it my whenever I see a situation like this, I always say, okay, what does my reptilian brain tell me? Okay. And my reptilian brain is telling me that all these vaccines, if the natural human, if the human human's natural immune system is truly the can truly by addressing the virus or the, you know, be the ultimate protection against that virus and its mutants. And also it doesn't create variations. Okay, right. that's the ultimate. But now what you have is a money-making machine that would create um, the response, that, that would override the immune system. And so the immune system is constantly dependent upon a never-ending series of vaccines. I mean, look look at years ago, kids had one or two vaccines and that was it, okay? Now, by the time kids are, you know, 18, they've had dozens of vaccines. And now here you've got this pandemic that now is gonna want you to take more vaccines and more for one thing only. So it's gonna develop that you're gonna have more viruses, another vaccine. I mean, people are gonna be jabbed perpetually. It's, It's like creating a gigantic jabbing industry while destroying the natural immune system. Now, what do you think of my reptilian thought?
0: I think it's very well said, and I, I could kind of summarize it this way. As I said, your, your body's been studying immune, the viruses for a long time. Let's talk about the data. Um, there's a 0.0086 chance of reinfection. Um, That data comes out of Israel when they looked at the reinfection rate over the last year and a half in people who acquired COVID-19. Okay, that's
1: that's people who got it and got over it by themselves. Is that correct? Correct. Or using a few drugs that are not gene therapy?
0: Well, let's just say regardless of how they recovered, they recovered. And they didn't recover. Maybe they recovered just on their own. Maybe they recovered through some treatment. At the end of the day, that number still comes out to 0.0086. We don't know if they're in the hospital, not in the hospital, convalesced at home. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it's a 0.0086. That's the data we have. And when I tell people, they're trying to say, you know, like I said, 12% of the uh, genome is is the, is the spike. So what they're trying to say is, oh no, we're going to make better antibodies. And I tell people like antibodies are very specific. I, I tell them it's like car keys. They fit really specifically. You can make, I can make twenty-five car keys for my car. It's not going to help me that much. I only need one. So at the end of the day, antibodies are like car keys. And I tell them T cells are like tow trucks. I don't need it. I can still take my car out of my driveway with the tow truck, whether I have a car key or not. So T cells are more are more are are better able to deal with these viruses. And that that immunity does not come very much from in a vaccination program. But let me let me kind of give you a couple of things for your readers, I mean for your listeners to talk think about. So when they say they make more antibodies, what I usually say is it's like saying you're making more blue pens to paint the rainbow. You, you need, if you want to paint the rainbow, you need all the colors. If you want to have long, durable immunity, you need to have antibodies and T-cells to the nucleocapsid, to the membrane, the envelope, the human gluten esterase, and the spike. You need all the colors of the rainbow to have long, broad, durable immunity because then the virus has no chance to, to survive mutating a little bit here. Well, you know, then you're going to kill it with the nucleocapsid antibodies and the nucleocapsid uh, recognition of the of the of the T cells. So you're going to have a way to fight this virus that is that is uh, uh, in- incredibly broad and so because of that, incredibly durable. So you you can never beat this natural immunity. We cannot do it, and that's why we're a dog chasing his tail right now, one vaccine after another. I think it's a mistake, and that's the policy. Uh, program that we're going to get into as we go forward is to provide people with real information that talks about these issues specifically that it doesn't make sense to kind of keep like it be like a dog chasing his tail
1: so let me ask you something if you if today you were finally made it, it somebody came and told you you now have mr fauci's job he's out what would what would you do what would your first tasks be as the new head?
0: Well, the, the first thing we talk about really is, is contagion control. I would not uh, go for lockdowns. I think masks are a personal choice. Why? Because when you put a mask on, it's very similar to putting blanket over your kid's feet at night to get, keep ghosts from getting their feet. It doesn't work. There's no randomized control trials, zero, zero. I want to say it again: zero. There's multiple randomized controlled trials, but zero have shown that masks stop the spread of upper respiratory disease. So we're seeing that this has been studied a long time for the last four decades. They don't work. So I would I would allow people to wear masks because it makes them they believe that's it, it makes them feel better. So if they want to wear them, but I'm not going to arrest people for not wearing them. Um, secondly, uh, thirdly, I would uh, uh, it, talk to people about their own immune systems and how vitamin D deficiency is a huge factor and disease, a huge factor in uh, immunology and allergy. He's the head of immunology and allergy. That's the first thing you should do. He takes 8,000 uh, units a day of vitamin D3 because it works for the immune system's function. You need it to you're, have a good immune system. You need this to help interpret it, the data that's coming your way. So with low amounts of all of us sitting inside like this, sitting here, we don't get a lot of D. And that's, that'd be the other thing that I would recommend. Thirdly, I would work with um, all the scientists to try to find therapies that work. There are a lot of them that do. We had to repurpose at that first. That's the first thing I would have done. Is, look, we don't have any bullets. We don't have any weapons to fight this war. What do we have? What do we have in the back? You know, what do we have over here that we can use? I found like, I don't know, eight or nine, ten things in 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 about a two-hour period that might work. Almost all of them: uh hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Um, um, uh, cyclosporine um, there's um, I'm blanking on a couple others right now but calitra didn't really work it was an HIV drug but, but I found uh, all these things that might work a gout drug, colchicine uh, that's another one I found all within a very short period of time it didn't take me long I literally went to, to my guys at work I said look I got two hours at lunch I'm going to go end this pandemic I was half kidding but when I came back I was super excited I go wow this is, <laughs> there's a lot we can do while we're waiting for something better and I'm, I'm for uh, safe vaccination programs. I've always been a, a, a proponent of that. So I would institute that, uh, that look at those in a, and look at it a safe way with a lot of caution, because I know that the history of these, this antibody dependent enhancement and the spike protein itself, which clearly was an engineered product. Um, if you can look at the data, I, 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 that's not my expertise, but clearly there's a lot of engineering that went into this spike protein. It has a GP120 HIV fragment. It's got a, in cleavage sites never before been seen on the S between the S1 and S2 that helps to bind to these two receptors. You're seeing things we've never seen before. And so, the first thing I would do is say, let's let's try to find something to neutralize some of these things. But knowing that I'm not going to rush that because his, the historic record has shown that they've been very dangerous in the past. The animals have died. All, all these things are, are true facts. They're not, it's not my opinion to say that. This is just what it is. So, I would go about it that way. Prophylaxis. Um, early treatment would be my number one things, repurpose drugs, and then try to get better drugs on board, um, and then look for vaccination.
1: Would you put a moratorium on vaccinations?
0: Uh, I'm not a big fan of this current vaccination program, Uh, so I would have to look at it carefully and give it strong consideration. There's a good likelihood that I would actually, until until we can figure out the long-term safety data, I cannot see why we're given anything to pregnant women. We've never done that before, and they're encouraging it. I literally had somebody who had two miscarriages. She's 10 weeks, and her her OB said to go ahead and get the, the vaccine. And I looked at her and I said, you've already had two miscarriages. This is not a time to play around with chemicals and things. I go, there's not a single drug that I would give you right now, not a single one. If I could keep you off Tylenol, I wouldn't do Tylenol. I wouldn't do aspirin." New much i do nothing if we could help it that's let your body um d- do not put chemicals in your body that you don't need and i said and we've never done that in medicine ever we've never encouraged uh the the usage of of these things this is insane that they're doing it and then the young people under age 30 over the last four months more people have died if you look at healthy young kids more people have died from the vaccine than have died from the virus itself so you're seeing things that you know there's no signal of benefit 12 to 17, 0.1 per 100,000 young, healthy kid. That's one in a million chance of dying from the mm-hmm. virus itself. So we need to look at these numbers carefully. And when you see these numbers, you see that there are, there are areas where there's absolutely no signal of benefit. And then you have the COVID recovered, who are, have the antigenic fingerprint that I was telling you about. And they have this huge immune response already because they had the virus. And when you stick 14 billion messenger RNAs that make a couple hundred billion spikes, you have a war going on. You might You might perish from that. Um, because you get a hyperimmune response. It's not smart. This is not smart science. This is bad science, bad policy.
1: So what happens to the kids? Same thing that happens to the adults in in terms of the bad reactions?
0: If they've already been COVID recovered, they're more likely to get into a bad uh, reaction because their immune systems are just more hyper responsive. So they're the most likely, like we had a 24-year-old, a 16-year-old, I know that died in Houston that were previously COVID recovered. And 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 this is this is because, what he died of? Uh, thrombosis. They they create they create a massive immune response. Uh, one kid died of a PE, The other I don't remember now, but uh, the 24 year old died of a PE. The bottom line What's is a P? like
1: what? Uh, pulmonary
0: embolus. Oh, pulmonary embolus, uh, a okay. uh, blood clot to the lungs. Okay. So what we're seeing here is that these kids and and, and look, I'm not. this is making me feel like I'm scaring everybody. The bottom line is the vaccination program has been. The most deadly. I mean, this is not my opinion. It's the most deadly vaccine rollout in history, period. I mean, there's 12,000 plus deaths. We haven't accumulated 12,000 deaths ever in all the other ones that have been tracked and uh, and traced over this over this you know last 40 years or so. So, it's by far it's the most deadly combined against all the other ones. We've we've had more deaths here than we've ever had, and we're just moving on. We 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 really should be looking at the data and and as I tell you. They've gone out of their way not to collect data. So in Israel, and England, we have perspective data analysis. They look at the patients, they track them and they trace what's going on. Here, they decide to stop tracking in May. Um, why? I guess they didn't like the, what they were seeing, so they stopped tracking.
1: Again, I think it's criminal. And, and I, I know you don't wanna, I, I, I'm hoping that you, that you see this not as instilling fear in people, but actually giving people hope and information that will save their lives because if they can do things prophylactically, early treatment if they know about these things, then even if their doctors don't know, they can go and say, "Well, this is what I want." You know, and here's the science. You know, you can go on YouTube and listen to this physician and 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 you know, he's successfully treating his patients. So, do what he does and and you'll go home happy too knowing that you've taken good care of your patients. I mean, you know, it's very interesting. I just, you know, recently um, former President Obama had a birthday party, 60th birthday party where he invited a lot of people, okay? Uh, I think at least over a hundred, you know? Um, Anyway, a lot of people and no masks, no masks. And then uh, next thing, you know, uh, they go, oh, and this was on Martha's Vineyard. And they say, oh, uh, 63 people, I think it was 63, but it's some, somewhere in the 60s, people uh, had, the cases are up now, cases of COVID are up on Martha's Vineyard, uh, it, basically trying to connect <clears throat> those two things together. Uh, Obama had a big party, nobody was wearing masks. COVID is up in Martha's Vineyard. So I, even if COVID is up in Martha's Vineyard, is that something to be alarmed about if you do have uh, prophylaxis and early treatment?
0: I'm glad you brought the question that way because it's basically what I would have said, sort of like, you know, fine, if you want to, it, masks don't work. So it, it's not because if masks work, we'd be out of this already. All right, so first of all, second of all, People who are susceptible are going to be susceptible. And, and so it's a respiratory illness. And we have to assume susceptible people are going to be susceptible. It's that simple. If you've had the virus already, you're not susceptible. It turns out, unfortunately for us, that the vaccination program has not been that successful in, in actually giving uh, immunity. Um, it may, may give some immunity, but not not massive immunity. What you have is people who are vaccinated are actually the source of a lot of these infections because they're still carrying disease. They're still carrying and replicating the virus. They're just, in a sense, uh, maybe they're not getting as sick as they would have gotten. As I said, that's still in question. But um, we're seeing that, th- that for sure, 100%. No one's going to argue with me about what I'm about to say, which is the people who are vaccinated are also a source of infections for others. The unvaccinated, of course, are a source of potential infection, but the COVID recovered are the least likely to be um, a source of anything because they don't 0.0086. So you have a group of people that are susceptible, even if they had vaccination, as they said in, in Israel, 90% are vaccinated, but the vaccination works as well as wearing a blue shirt. It doesn't work. Um, so we're going to be basically susceptible until we kind of, you know, that's what's happened.
1: Let's and say, the vaccinated are the ones who are going to give you the delta variant right
0: the vaccinated are the, are the source of of mutations because of what i told you you have a narrowly focused treatment against a really small thing called the spike protein and the, and it escapes around it the, the a, a normal person uh, reacts to the whole to whole virus this puts a, pre, uh, prepares the immune system to really fight against one portion of it and that because of that um, they produce uh, escape mutants that basically get around it And and then they and then they actually cough and and give them to other people. And that's it's not a bad thing. It's a it it just is like we shouldn't be mad about who's doing this. This is this is the wrong narrative.
1: I I agree. But I think the irony of the situation is you have Obama and probably a lot of some other famous people. I won't say a lot, but other famous people who are at his party are big proponents of get vaxxed, get vaxxed, get vaxxed. And, and yet, you know, they everybody's now the big narrative is the Delta variant is out and people are getting it. And and it's the Vax who are releasing the Delta variant. So there's kind of an irony to that. Well, there we've is. run we, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much, so much for the work that you're doing.